Good evening. Uh, I hope you're all doing okay. Uh, we're going to look again this evening that passage from Mark. I sent out some questions earlier this week uh, from the passage. I hope you've been able to look through those. And we started this journey through Mark's gospel. I was just trying to think it's just over a year ago now. Um, we had a couple of months break in the middle for discipleship explored. Uh, but after looking at tonight's passage, uh, chapter 15, verses 16 to 39, we've got one more section and then we've uh, finished looking through Mark's gospel. I pray uh, and then we will think about our passage for this evening. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you uh, for this gospel that we've been looking through and we thank you for how it reveals uh, the truth about Jesus. And we thank you that when we look at Jesus, we see exactly, Lord, what you are like. Dear Father, we ask for us tonight as we uh, look at the cross. We pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to really see what you are doing and what you have done through uh, Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Lord, uh, we pray that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness. Lord, uh, may it shape our value system. May it shape the way we see ourselves and the way we see our world. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Really, the whole gospel has been building towards these final two scenes, the cross, which is our passage uh, this evening, and then the burial and discovery of the empty tomb, which comes at the end. The whole gospel has been leading us up to this point. In fact, the whole Bible has really been building towards this point. All of the Old Testament has led us to this point when Jesus will die on a cross. And in fact, the whole of human history and all of creation has led up to this point on this point that creation is hinged and it turns and it's this point the story of the humanity uh, changes direction we heard mark tell us uh, right at the start chapter one verse one of his gospel that this is good news about jesus the son of god and we heard that declaration didn't we from the father himself at jesus baptism this is my son uh, with whom i am well pleased as we've gone through the gospel we've seen jesus authority the fact that he can call people and they follow him. We've, we've seen his authority in his teaching. We've seen his miracles, how he has authority over sickness. We've seen him raise people from the dead. We've seen those feeding miracles that reveal that Jesus is the promised rescuer, bringing about the true exodus. Uh, but we've also seen something else in Mark's gospel. We've seen um, humanity as a heart problem. We do not want to listen. Uh, when we do listen, we don't really hear. We're always prone to put our confidence in ourselves. We like to please the crowd. Even when the truth is spoken clearly, we deny it. Uh, we all have this bent towards worldly power and hate the place of humility. And all of this means that people are, are offended by Jesus. We've seen the offence and the opposition to Jesus grow throughout the gospel. It's because of who he is that he's rejected. Uh, and in spite of the miracles and in spite of uh, of all that he's done, he's going to be the saviour who is rejected. His disciples leave him and he's all alone and now he goes to the cross. And begs the question, how, how can there be salvation for people when they reject the saviour? Up until now in Mark's gospel, there's been two phrases, uh, you probably not noticed this, two phrases that have been recorded as spoken in Aramaic, the, the first phrase was at the bedside of Jairus' daughter. Remember, Jairus' daughter had died, 
Uh, and when Jesus comes alongside, he speaks to her. He says to her, Talitha kum. That means little girl, get up. Uh, and what happens next is that she's raised to life. The second uh, phrase comes in chapter 7. That's when Jesus heals the deaf and, and mute man. He says, Ephatha, be opened. He opens the, the mouth and the ears of this man so he can speak and hear. These have been uh, these were great moments uh, in the gospel. But how can people be saved if they refuse to hear Jesus' words of life? How can people heading to the grave be rescued from death if they reject the Saviour? Well, the answer comes in the third Aramaic phrase, which is in verse 34 of chapter 15. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll get to that towards the end of the passage. In his trial, Jesus had chosen two charges for which he was going to be tried. The first one uh, was the, before the religious leaders. He confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the blessed, the Messiah. The second charge was before Pilate. Jesus said, I am the king of the Jews. And it's on account of these that Jesus account of these two charges that Jesus is now mocked. Let me read the first section of our passage this evening, Mark 15, 16 to 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of the soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat upon him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way to the country. They forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, and they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I don't know what strikes you about those verses. I think the thing that sticks out from that account for me is not the crucifixion or, or the graphic graphic details because there aren't any. There's no mention of hammer or nails. I think what is emphasised in those verses is human hardness, the cruelty and the mockery, the humiliation of it all. The soldiers dress him up as a mock king and offer a pretense of worship. While at the same time, they're repeatedly striking him across the head with a lump of wood and spitting at him. 
They make a crown for him, but the crown is a crown of thorns. Jesus is all alone. He is so weak and there is no one to help that a stranger is made to carry his cross. Jesus is humiliated. His clothes are divided up and all the soldiers seem to care about is getting a free piece of clothing. It's so cruel, so hard. Jesus is crucified with robbers and rebels. And then as he hangs on the cross, almost everyone seems to take the opportunity to hurl insults at him. Verse 29. The religious leaders, they take their opportunity to mock and scorn the one they hate. And even those crucified alongside Jesus, they hurl insults upon him. Jesus is rejected. As we look on this crucifixion scene and we see the hatred and the scorn and the mockery, we may we want to distance ourselves from those who are gathered round the cross, somehow shake our heads and think we are not like them. But the reality that I think is meant to confront us through these verses is that we are just like them. We share a common humanity. They are just like us. They're flesh and blood. They're people with sinful hearts like us. What we see here at the cross reveal very clearly is what humanity thinks about God. This is God come to his creatures as a creature, the word made flesh. And what is revealed in these verses at the cross is what we think of him. The mock reverence that the soldiers offered reveals what the temple worship had become in all of its ugliness. Remember, the temple had become a place where religious people pretended to worship God while at the same time robbing him of what was rightfully his. Here at the cross we see all of humanity's indifference and hatred to God, it's exposed as the one who is the very image of God, the Christ, his son, is is rejected. Mentioned in the questions as well that this account is is thick with irony. Irony is a technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the the full significance of a character's actions is clear to the audience or to the reader, although it's unknown to those who speak the words. And the irony is that even though Jesus here in these verses is rejected as saviour, the very words that the soldiers and those gathered around the cross used to mock Jesus and their actions actually show that he is the Christ, he is the saviour. I hope you're able to look at the list of Old Testament references here that uh, show us what's going on. There was ones from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of the rejected king who's facing opposition and, and many of the verses there point us forward to the events of the cross. Isaiah 53 is all about the, the promised servant that will come and suffer to save his people. Again, much of that prophecy points us forward to what is happening here at the cross. No others, but you can see the irony most in the mocking words that come from those stood around the cross. They say, so you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down and save yourself. It's lost on them, but at this very moment, Jesus is willingly hanging on the cross so that his body The temple may be broken down and raised in three days and become the place where people meet with God. They say he saved others, let him save himself. But it's because he's the saviour that will save others through his death that he will not save himself. 
Then perhaps most ironic of all, they say, let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down that we may see and believe. But Jesus will not come down because it's only through his death and resurrection that many will come to see and believe. And it'll be a couple of months later from these events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday that the people in Jerusalem will be, be cut to the heart as Peter preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified and 3,000 people in one day will see and believe in Jesus. So Jesus, we see here, is the rejected saviour. And in the majesty of God's great salvation plan, it's through this rejection that salvation will come. And it will come because Jesus is not only the rejected saviour, he's also the forsaken mediator. Let me read verses 33 to 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Throughout this Good Friday account, there were these time markers. Jesus is brought before Pilate in the early hours of the morning. Verse 25 uh, says it's the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9am. And then at the sixth hour, that's midday. After three hours of humiliation and mocking, the sun goes out and there's darkness over the whole land. Darkness for three hours until the ninth hour, so that's 3pm. The whole land of Israel, the lights went out. I wonder what those around the cross thought at this moment. This was not just a solar eclipse that lasts a few minutes. This was solid darkness for three hours. What are we to make of this? Well, In the Old Testament, such cosmic signs are linked with something called the Day of the Lord. It's a day when God was going to come and bring judgment upon his enemies. It's also a day uh, when God will bring salvation for his people. And in the questions, I mentioned two places in particular in the Old Testament where we see this. Three places. One is Isaiah 13, one is Jeremiah 15, uh, verse 69, and one is Exodus 10. In Exodus, uh, that section of Exodus is the account of the plagues and, and darkness comes on the land of Egypt, uh, it's, a, it's a judgment of God. Darkness covers the whole land of Egypt. And it's a judgment that will lead to the exodus and rescue of God's people. And that ninth plague comes just before the tenth and final plague where you get the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. The Isaiah reference is also about judgment. A judgment that's prophesied against Babylon. Those people who have exiled God's people. And Isaiah writes, see the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
The reference in Jeremiah again speaks of God's coming judgment. This time it's a judgment upon Israel for all of her unfaithfulness and her rejection of God. It says in those verses that the sun will set while it is day. And here at the cross, the sun goes out and darkness covers the whole land. And that's because judgment falls. From the lips of Jesus, there comes this cry that that explains what the, the three hours of darkness are all about. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Even though darkness covers the whole land, it's only Jesus who is forsaken. In the book of Numbers, uh, there's some verses that we we know well that pronounce a divine benediction or or a blessing from God for his people. You go like this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face towards you and give you peace. What's happening under this dark sky of the cross is the complete opposite of this benediction. Jesus is accursed and forsaken. God turns his back and pours out his judgment. God turns away away his face from his son and removes all peace and in its place there is infinite unrest. It's hard to conceive what is contained in that agonising cry. Said in the questions, I think this is one of the most mysterious verses in the whole Bible. We cannot imagine what the one who was perfectly loving and perfectly loved suffered as he was forsaken by his father. We cannot imagine what one who was perfectly holy and even in that very moment was obeying his God suffered from being under the divine curse and drinking the cup of divine wrath. In one sense, there was no reason why Jesus should be forsaken. He'd done nothing wrong. But we know that in these hours, he became sin for us. He became a curse. He was forsaken because of the sin of his people. And he was forsaken so that he may be the mediator. He was forsaken to make atonement between God and man. Our hymns capture this, don't they? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. Or this one, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. But those standing around the cross on that day, they, they saw none of that. They heard Jesus cry. And do you see what they presume? They think he's calling out for Elijah. They mistook the cry, Eloi, Eloi, as a cry for Elijah instead of God. Those standing at the cross, they hear but they do not really hear. Seems they can think of no one greater than Elijah and nothing greater than escape from the cross. Let's wait and see if Elijah will come and take him down, they say. That's the first response to Jesus' first cry. Misunderstanding, not really hearing. Then we read in these final verses of Jesus' second cry. 
Jesus calls out with a loud voice. Mark doesn't tell us what he says, but then we read that Jesus breathed his last. At the moment of Jesus' death, the camera cuts to the temple. And we see there a curtain ripped in two from top to bottom. The sign of darkness shows us that Jesus was forsaken. What does this sign show us? Well, the curtain was probably the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place of the Holy of Holies. That's where the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's presence was. And, and not just anyone could go into God's presence. Only the high priest could go in and he could go in once a year with a sacrifice of blood. This tearing of the temple, tearing of the temple curtain signifies two things. First of all, it shows us that the temple is now unfit for purpose. It can no longer mediate God's presence to his people. The curtain's torn open. Imagine the difficulty the priests in the temple would have. The second thing it shows us is that Jesus is now the mediator. Through his death, he has opened the way to God. And we see something of that in the centurion's response. Quite remarkable response, isn't it? Chapter 15, verse 39. Listen to the words of the centurion. As he sees Jesus die, he says, truly this man was the son of God. This coming from the Gentile soldier who had just overseen the execution of Jesus. Suddenly he sees something that he'd not seen before. As he saw the way Jesus breathed his last, suddenly he sees Jesus for who he is. He sees Jesus as the one who Mark told us he was right at the start, the Son of God. He sees Jesus as the Father sees him, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's because Jesus is the forsaken mediator that this Gentile, this Gentile soldier can see and believe. I don't know about you, but these verses just fill me with thankfulness. They also humble me as I see the hatred of humanity against our creator. It made me think of those verses uh, from when I survey, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Are we thankful for Jesus Christ, our rejected saviour, our forsaken mediator? Let me uh, close with some words from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let me pray. Dear Father, we're so thankful to be able to behold the cross of Jesus. We're so thankful for the eyes that you have given us to see and the ears that you have given us to hear. We are thankful for our Saviour. We're thankful for Jesus Christ, the one who was forsaken so that he may be our mediator and bring us back to you. Dear God, we pray that you would teach us to continue to draw near with hearts that are full of faith and confidence in our Saviour. We thank you that we don't need to be bothered about temples and curtains and sacrifices. Thank you that all of these lead us to our Saviour. Help us to glory in him and in his cross. And Lord, we pray that you would humble us. Help us to think small thoughts about ourselves and great things about you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.